HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. All right, Thursday, 1 o'clock, and once again, you've tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I am your host, Erin Fairbanks. And today we are kicking off another in our series of growing beverages, and we're going to start to explore cider. Uh, cider is all, everywhere you look here in New York City. Cider Week's about to kick off next um on October 12th, and here on the Farmer Report, we're going to start looking at this uh, beverage, this delicious beverage, uh, through the lens of agriculture, as we do here on the show every week. And I'm excited to have on the line with us Eleanor Leger from Eden Ice Cider Company up in West Charleston, Vermont. Eleanor, welcome to the show. Thank you, Erin. I'm delighted to be here. Great. Well, let's tuck right in. I mean, I think, you know, we should probably start out with some of the basic uh, definitions so we can all be on the same page about what we're talking about. And, you know, I always grew up as cider being a, a sweet beverage that you'd have with donuts out at the apple orchard. And then as I got older, you know, noticed the woodchuck cider in the beverage case at, at local beer shops. And, and now all over the city, I'm seeing these like beautiful uh, you know, wine bottles that contain cider. So maybe you can take us through uh, the different varieties and then we'll finish up learning about what you produce, which is ice cider. Great. So you're right. Um, uh, in the United States, it's the only country where the term cider refers to the sweet, fresh-pressed juice of apples at the orchard in the fall. It's a little oxidized, gets that wonderful warm brown color, has all sorts of flavor in it, sweet and tart. Um, but not alcoholic, um, whereas in every other country in the world, when you say cider or cidre or whatever you say it in their language, um, they recognize that as the fermented um, juice of fresh-pressed apples, um, and that's what we call hard cider here. And then ice cider is um, quite different from that as well. Um, hard cider typically is 
anywhere from sort of 5 to 8% alcohol. High cider is um, 10% or higher, and um, that higher alcohol, alcohol um, along with residual sweetness, is the result of cold concentrating the juice before fermentation. Um, exactly the same principle that ice wines use, where we're using natural cold weather to freeze the water away from the flavor and the sugars of the fruit. Oh, and making for a very delicious uh, beverage in the process. So, um, you know, my understanding with all, uh, kind of one of the things that all of these ciders have in common is kind of the initial stage of, of pressing the apples for that first juice extraction looks the same whether you're making sweet cider, hard cider, or ice cider. Would that be correct? That's correct. That's correct, yep. So well, why don't you talk us through a little bit about what happens in the cider making process for you up at, up at Eden Ice Cider after you've extracted this juice? Or maybe are there, there are things that you do differently um, in your extraction process that sets you apart from other uh, hard cider or ice cider producers? Right. Well, um, ice cider is something that was developed in Quebec about 20 years ago. Um, we're 10 miles on the other side of the U.S.-Canada border from Quebec, so it's really the same climate. Um, and the process that was developed that, uh, in Quebec that we follow is um, using late-season apples, pressing them starting around Thanksgiving, the beginning of December, when it gets to be reliably below freezing outside, and putting the juice right outside to freeze. Um, so that's not something that a typical hard cider maker would do. They'll, uh, for hard cider, you press apples um, starting usually mid-September um, and then start let the juice start fermenting right away. Um, in our case, we go through this cold concentration process um, and get just a little bit of juice um, relative to the amount that we started with. In fact, we um, usually lose 75 to 80% of the volume of juice that we start with, but end up with this wonderful, rich, sweet elixir that we can then ferment uh, into a dis- delicious dessert wine. So, um, the... I'm like losing my train of thought here. I'm kind of like lusting after a glass of cider right now. But, um... <laughs> Um, when you're, so you're pressing the apples to extract the juice and, and, you know, this is like the cider, I think often weirdly, I think it's more lumped, I guess in my experience, more lumped in the beer category than in the wine category, but there isn't, you know, in the, in the production, there is the fermentation stage, but is there a cooking stage for cider production? I mean, do you do with pasteurization or is that not something that you have to worry about because you're, you're doing the fermentation? Right. We don't pasteurize. Um, it's going to be, it goes right out into freezing cold weather. Um, so that freezing process, um, uh, certainly preserves things for a while and then, um, and then we're fermenting, you know, cider makers can make all kinds of choices about, um, what they're doing. And there's, um, some real differences between cider makers who are making sort of a craft artisanal product from local apples all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is, you know, more industrial um, producers who are using concentrate and um, can create cider pretty much every two weeks throughout the year, regardless of um, vintages or when the harvest is, um, and, you know, have pasteurization and all of that. It's it's the full spectrum, just as you find in in pretty much any um, food business, you know, between craft folks who really care about the, the agricultural product that comes from the local farms um, to the big industrial 
big scale producers. Yeah, and cider making, I mean, originally, you know, was a preservation technique. I mean, cider making goes back, I think, you know, thousands of thousands of years as people were looking for a way to essentially preserve the season's harvest. And that's something I think we think a lot about here in the Northeast as we have, you know, the long, cold winters and preparing for that. So as far as uh, plant, you know, if you're looking to, to plant your orchard or to harvest apples, I mean, because you guys aren't pressing until the weather is cold, um, is is there, like, what is the, the lapse between when the anim- apples come off the tree and then when they would be pressed for cider and how does that impact kind of the outcome of the cider? Right. So we're using late season apples that are typically harvested in October. Um, and um, they go into storage. And many of the heirloom varieties that we use were prized and kept going because they actually get sweeter and better during storage and last well um, in um, you know what was for the days when they had um, commercial refrigeration, just root cellars or in our case our barn. Um, and then we also work with a, a larger Vermont orchard that um, has cold storage um, to hold on to them for us as well. So you guys started in the in the winter of 2007. I mean, how did you stumble into the cider making business? Well, we, we my husband and I um, have always loved apples. He spent some time in Normandy when he was younger. Uh, French is his first language. Um, we love cider. We love Calvados. Um, and we were had always dreamed of having a, a farm and an orchard in the Northeast Kingdom where my family goes back many generations. And it wasn't until we were visiting my sister-in-law in Montreal and she said, hey, you've got to taste this ice cider stuff. And we literally looked at each other and said, wow, this is amazing. Um, and somebody, nobody's doing this in Vermont and, and we should think about doing it. And you know, part of making that decision about sort of betting your life savings on something is also a careful consideration of the economics and how that might work. And I think one of our um, key considerations was, is this something that could possibly um, be profitable um, on a small scale? We have no interest in creating a big industry, big factories, anything like that. Um, But, you know, you're looking for something that on a small scale you can make enough of a gross margin um, to cover your fixed costs without having to be too big. And, um, you know, ice cider is, it's a wonderful, amazing dessert wine. Um, It's uh, it goes incredibly well with cheese, great for dessert, great for gifts, wonderful for Thanksgiving. But it's not something you drink every day. It's definitely a boutique niche product. Um, it is fairly high priced because it takes so many apples to make one bottle. Um, but it has a, the kind of gross margin that can support a small-scale operation um, in a sustainable way. And that was what convinced us to really get started. So when you when you got started, did you guys already have the piece of property that you're on, or did you start by looking for a location and, and then go from there? We looked. We knew the region. We knew we wanted to be in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, um, both for the climate and, and the family connections. Um, and then we looked specifically for a piece of property that would be um, good to grow apples on. Um, so it needed to have a slope. It needed to not be in a valley where frost would accumulate. It needed to not be on the top of a hill where the wind would be too cold um, and uh, to be sloping in the right direction. 
And were there resources that you looked to? I mean, you kind of rattle off all these, you know, kind of markers you were looking for based in the land. But I mean, where did you where did you learn, you know, even what to look for? Do you have a farming background or an orcharding background? Nope, um, don't, other than I've always loved to garden, and, and uh, we also like to say we come from the consumer side of the wine business. We've always liked to drink wine. Um, but uh, my husband's a scientist, and um, we love to learn about things, and we studied up and went and visited people and took a short course at Cornell on cider making and, um, and then did a lot of experimentation and testing. So in those initial kind of planning phases, I mean, can you give us a sense of uh, what are the different scales that that you can look at for an entry-level production for, you know, something that's going to be for a retail market that's going to look to to support a family or to support a small business? I mean, how much cider are are we talking about? Right. So in the case of ice cider, um, we started out making... Um, about 120 gallons of ice cider, um, and it goes into 375 milliliter bottles. So that's essentially 100 cases, 12 bottle cases of ice cider. Um, and that was enough for us to go around and see if we could sell it um, and really make a market. And um, um, from there, um, you know, we knew that based on sort of the equipment we'd have to buy over time and um, the uh, amount we might be able to sell that we needed to get to close to probably 80,000 bottles to be financially sustainable. Um, And that's still um, really small in terms of being a winery. Um, And we're currently right about 35,000. So we're well on our way, but still, still a ways to go. Sure. And can, well, what are what is some of that equipment? I mean, obviously, you have the press for pressing the apples, and then I'm assuming there's uh, a variety of uh, holding vessels at, to con, you know contain the juice in the in the you know out in the snow. Um, what right. like, what does that look right. like? Yeah, right. So they're um, the, the large containers. Um, they're plastic, so they can handle the expansion of the freezing juice. Um, there are those are ubiquitous in the beverage industry. They're things they're called totes, which sounds very dainty, but they're really intermediate beverage containers and they hold about two hundred and seventy five gallons. Um, and then they're and then from there it's really a winemaking process. So it's all the sort of equipment that you need to buy to have a small scale winery. Um, tanks, stainless steel tanks, um, a pump is critical um, to move the wine from one tank to another when you want to stop fermentation and leave the all the dead yeast at the bottom of the tank. Um, you need access to good quality water for cleaning. Um, and um, then, of course, you have bottling equipment. Um, so fillers and corkers and capsulers um, and labelers. Um, and uh, um, that's, that's, those are pretty much the basics. Um, we were... Um, very excited to encourage other orchards in Vermont and New England to start making ice cider. We really believe it's a product that represents our terroir really well, and you can't make it a lot of places. Um, and so the Vermont Department of Agriculture um, uh, gave us a grant to write um, a guide on how to make ice cider, and that's available on the Department of Agriculture website. So you can Google how to make Vermont guide to making Vermont ice cider and it really walks through all of those 
processes and equipment needs and so forth um, for how to get started. That sounds like a wonderful resource. I think we are going to take a quick break, and when we get back, I want to talk a little bit more about those some of that state money and, and state support or regional uh, organizational support for cider makers in Vermont. So stay tuned. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Seeing a need to help people sort through all the misinformation about healthy eating, Whole Foods Market added a seventh core value to promote the health of our stakeholders through healthy eating education. In our stores, we give you the tools you need for choosing the most nutritious foods and healthy recipes, as well as offering classes with nutritionists and cooking coaches to help inspire good health and well-being. Stop by your local store today and learn more about our Health Starts Here program and wellness clubs or online at wholefoodsmarket.com slash health starts here. All right, we are back. You're tuned into the Farm Report and we are on the line with Eleanor Leger of Eden Ice Cider. Uh, big shout out to our sponsor for this episode, Whole Foods. They are going to be hosting a series of events uh, for Cider Work Cider Cider Week ugh, Cider Week here in New York City, and you can find out more about all the events that are, are going to be listed by by visiting the website. Um, and I know Eleanor, you have an event coming up with Ann Saxelby, who does a show here on the network called Cutting the Curd, a little bit later in the month, which is, a, I believe, a, a cheese and cider pairing. Uh, which sounds delicious. Are tickets still available? Yes, they are. Um, and uh, there's a link um, available through um, 61 Local, um, which is where it's going to be held. Um, and then we're also doing another cider and cheese tasting with artisanal premium cheese. So all of those events happen during Cider Week, and they're all listed on the Cider Week website, which is ciderweeknny.com. Oh, excellent. So rush out and get your tickets now. So we were talking a little bit about uh, before the break about how you had developed a guide for cider makers in Vermont and that the kind of um, funding for that guide came through a state supported grant. Now cider is a value added product, which is one of those words you hear kind of tossed around a lot. But um, I don't know, for me, sometimes it's always I'm like, what exactly are we talking about? And where is the value added? And what does that mean? And so I'm curious, like, how you found, you know, because you're a fairly recent startup, you know, the resources within Vermont and then maybe outside of Vermont that you found useful developing your business and, and learning about the agricultural ends of things, but also kind of communicating with other uh, producers in, in that world and looking at the issues of, you know, distribution and, and equipment sourcing. And I mean, how much were you out on your own and how much was there like a system and, and maybe a little bit how that's changed uh, since you've been making cider? 
Right, that's a lot. Of I know. I just think I think I just asked you eight <laughs> so, questions. Um, the um, the value added producers. I mean, one of the the things about cider is it comes from apples, and we've had apples in New England for centuries, and so we're really, you know, the the hundred percent pretty much of what goes into a cider is a local agricultural product, um, at least for those of us who are making artisanal cider from local apples. Um, and so the support for that, a- apples are the state food of Vermont. It's the largest fruit crop. Um, you know, there are 4 million pounds of apples produced in Vermont every year, um, more or less, a little bit less this year. Um, and the, the farmers who, the growers who produce those apples are themselves family, small businesses. Some of them have had the orchards in their families for two or three generations. Um, some of them have saved orchards out of bankruptcy with help of the Vermont Land Trust. And so we really love working with growers as well as our own orchard um, because they need a market for their secondary fruit and we um, want to pay a fair price and have long-term partnerships and um, you know, help support them as well. So there's a, a real um, sense of we're all in this together um, that's great. Um, and then the other aspect of that we found very helpful in Vermont is the tremendous focus on local food um, that um, in some senses almost started with Vermont um, a number of years ago, uh, Vermont was one of the first states, if not the first state, to create um, a network that connects chefs and farmers um, direct farm to table. And so when we were getting started five years ago, we had our first vintage. We went to that network and found those chefs who um, you know, had dessert wines in their portfolio and cared about local. And um, every one of them agreed to meet with us and taste our product. Um, and, you know, whether it was because of the quality or just because we were local or the first, um, um, I think out of the first 27 places we went to, 26 of them bought it and many rebought. And so we sold out in a month and a half. And, wow, kudos. Um, many of those first, well, those first customers of ours are still wonderful customers, great chefs and, and sommeliers that we have relationships through to today. So that, that's an incredibly supportive way to, to get started when you have that resource. Yeah, that, I mean that that sounds really l- like a like you fell into the right niche in, in so many in so many different ways. You mentioned um, at your at your um, up at Eden Cider, you guys produce apples in your orchard, but then you also buy in and you buy in seconds. Um, what it, like what what makes a second a second, and and how how is the price set for apples at that? Is it something you're doing, or is it set more broadly? Um, how do you guys come to terms with with p- paying the farmers? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So um, there is a grade of apples called utility apples or juice apples. So these are apples that um, don't make it to the grocery store because they're misshapen, they're too large, they're too small, they have um, a slight blemish from. Uh, maybe scab or an insect that doesn't affect the quality, but it affects the appearance. Um, and traditionally, those apples um, went to the fresh juice market um, or to the you know bottled juice, so the sort of brands of apple juice that you find in the grocery store that have been treated so there's no particulate and they're sort of clear and pale. Um, and over the past 20, 30 years, um, all of that fresh juice market has disappeared in the U.S. Virtually every bottle of fresh juice 
um, um, you know, canned juice, so to speak, bottled juice in supermarkets today are made from concentrate that comes from outside the U.S. And so the ability of the orchards to take the secondary fruit and have a market for it has been um, really tough. And, you know, you'll find orchards all over New England and Michigan and places that have gone out of business in the past 30 years because there was no place to sell these. Um, so that's the that's sort of the, the hole that has existed that um, hard cider and ice cider can help to fill. And so a lot of, um, it's wonderful that there's been this great craft cider movement that's really starting to gain speed because it's um, reviving that market. Yeah, I mean, and and so the, the market changed, obviously, I'm assuming because people could purchase in juice or concentrate at a lower price. Um, that's right. Okay. That's right. Sorry, I should have made that explicit. Yeah. And, and Very th- cheap concentrate from China. Okay, and then that's the other, my, was my other question is where is it coming from, but it's coming from China. and China, I, Argentina, Italy, um, yeah. And an app like a concentrate... I mean, I'm familiar. I mean, we grew up eating, drinking concentrate or orange juice that came in a can and you mixed with, you know, three, three equal cans of water. But when you're producing a concentrate, um, you know, how, how does that work? You know, you squeeze the apple juice, but then uh, how do you like turn that juice into a concentrate? Um, so there, the, um, if you know anything about the maple syrup industry, you know that these things are called reverse osmosis machines. Mm-hmm. And they are um, the most uh, efficient in terms of energy, in terms of um, removing water out of a juice or a liquid. Um, and so maple syrup makers use them to um, concentrate the sap to a point so they don't have to spend quite so much energy boiling the sap. Um, and that's the same for making concentrate in large volumes on an industrial scale. Um, out of juices. Wow, that's fascinating. So the reverse osmosis, I mean, basically it's a filter system that allows uh, certain molecules to pass through the filter and um, and others not and essentially removes water. Um, that's And then oh. there still is a uh, further boiling, concentrating it's, part to the process. There, there is a cooking part to the process. So um, what about apple varietals? I mean, I know that, you know, there's like the classic story of, of Johnny Appleseed and and him, you know, moving about the country planting seeds because he felt like, you know, grafting apples was against God's work. Um, so you had kind of this different varieties, some that were great for eating, others that were great for cider. I mean, how are the choices with regards to what varieties, like how does that impact like what... Um, ciders you produce or you're able to produce and is I'm just curious if the secondary market is made up of a particular type of apple that's a really good point and it's there's some really exciting things happening in this area right now so that the after prohibition or during prohibition when all of the cider apple trees were cut down um, people um, focused on the dessert market and so the vast majority of apples that are commercially grown today are dessert varieties. And what do we mean by that? A dessert variety has that great crisp texture. It has, it's, has a little sweetness to it. might have a little acidity to it. It doesn't have a tremendous amount of flavor. It doesn't have a lot of tannins um, because those make it bitter and unattractive to eat as a dessert apple. Cider apples um, have a lot more of those tannins. 
Um, and in fact, apples have tannins in their flesh as well as the skins. I think of grape tannins, they're just in the skins. But apples have, can have tannins all the way through. Um, and so they'll be, have some bitterness and some astringency. And then they'll be baking apples that have um, wonderful acidity and um, uh, great uh, aromatics to them. And these are apples that we have really had a wonderful time working with for our ice cider um, and are often critical to making a really good quality hard cider. Um, and there are a, a few small growers and producers in New England who focus on these apples. Um, but the good news is that the word is getting out that, that having these kinds of apples are... Um, important for cider, for hard cider, for ice cider, and that um, cider makers are willing to pay for them. And hopefully we're going to see a lot more growers um, starting to invest in growing these types of apples for which there is, um, you know, a new and growing market. Wow, we're going to talk a little bit more into that kind of varietal discussion and more of the uh, farming kind of apples end of things on uh, our show October 11th when we'll have uh, Steve Wood of Farnham Hill Cider on to, to really tuck into some of the nitty gritty of um, varietals and you know maintaining an orchard. I'm curious, what do you guys do with the spent uh, like apple pulp? Oh yeah, after we press it, mm-hmm. um, compost. And is there no alter? I mean, I, I just know when I was working up at Flying Pigs Farm, occasionally we would stop by the cider mill on our way back from Albany and pick up a truckload of uh, spent apples because the pigs really loved it. But it yeah. just doesn't make sense to, to look into um, doing something else with that other than compost. It does. It absolutely does. We are, one of our challenges is that we start pressing apples for Thanksgiving and later, and most... Um, Pigs have gone to slaughter by then. Mm-hmm. To speak sadly of that, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, there are some opportunities that we're excited to look into. Um, Jasper Hill Cellars, the cheesemakers, and, and amazing cave-age cheeses that are near us, are creating um, a herd of pigs that are being fed with the whey from the cheesemaking operations. And we're also hoping to um, see if there's a way we can contribute some some apples to that. So, but it's uh, it's not a done deal yet. Oh, that sounds like a delicious pig. We'll have to stay tuned. Um, maybe see those next season. Um, before we go, I just wanted to ask about um, serving cider. I mean, one of the things I noticed you did uh, an event here, our, our first annual fundraiser party. You were here serving cider and. I've read that uh, these types of artisanally produced ciders should be served, you know, similar to wine around 60 degrees. And then I think one of the ciders that we served at the Heritage Party here, we actually put on ice. So maybe you can take us a little bit through uh, serving suggestions for cider so that when we rush out after the farm report to buy a few bottles, we will do them justice. (laughs) Right. Well, um, hard ciders are different than ice ciders and... um yeah, 55 to 60 is a great temperature to serve them at. Um, ice ciders are wonderful, served a little bit lower temperature than that um, um, because they are sweet um, and it's um, uh, 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 very intensely flavored. Um, and then what we served over ice is a special new aperitif-style cider that we're making, which is um, almost like a European aperitif wine. It's strong, dry, and infused with herbs, basil and anise hyssop, um, and it's really something that you can put over ice um, 
for um, a wonderful before dinner cocktail kind of thing. Lovely. And I think you can find out more about uh, Eden Cider and where to find their ciders by visiting their website, www.edencider.com. Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us and helping us uh, start this cider conversation. It was really great having you on today. Thank you, Erin. And stay tuned. Uh, more to come on cider. Uh, as I said, we'll have Steve Wood of Farnham, Farnham Hill Cider uh, on the Farm Report October 11th. You can check out last week's episode of Taste of the Past, where Ben Watson talks about his uh, book, Cider, Hard and Sweet. Uh, excellent episode about the kind of cultural uh, history of cider in the world and then tons of events happening all over New York City and then uh, a little bit up and down the uh, eastern side of the country. You can find out more about New York events by by visiting ciderweekny.com and a special shout out to um, the Cider Sessions that's coming up October 13th hosted by Beer Sessions Radio, another program of the Heritage Radio Network. That's October 13th going to be, I think, 20 different ciders tastings um, and some craft beer tastings at that event. And you can get the details and purchase tickets at theciderweekny.com or visit tons of restaurants all around town or doing amazing things with cider. I know I was at Back 40 West last week and had some uh, cider steamed clams, which were delicious here at Roberta's. They're participating in Cider Week. Spotted Pig, Fat Radish, Egg, um, all over town, so definitely no excuses for not getting a little cider this week. And, and tune in next week for another episode of The Farm Report. You can find all of our um, shows archived on our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. They're also available as a free podcast through iTunes, or you can reach them through Stitcher Smart Radio. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we will be back next week with another episode of The Farm Report. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update. All right. Thank you for tuning in to the Grow NYC Market Update. We are on the line with Jean Hodesh, Publicity Coordinator for Green Market, a program of Grow NYC. Jean, I know it's supposed to be in the 80s tomorrow in October and things have been a little wonky all season. So what can we expect to see at the market this week? Hey, Erin. Well, I was at Grand Army Plaza on Saturday last weekend, and someone came up to me with this very long face, and she said, 
it's the first Saturday. I haven't seen watermelon at the market. I guess they're over. And she looked so devastated. And then I turned around and I actually found there are just a few left at Evolutionary Organic Stand. So if you go out and look for them, tomorrow's going to be sort of a last summer hoorah. It might be a great day to eat some watermelon or cantaloupe. And there are still a few left lingering at some farm stands. Um, so I would recommend snatching them up if you find them. Awesome. Think, yeah, and then, I mean, you don't really think about eating watermelon in October too often. <laughs> I'm more onto apples myself. Yeah, I think about apples. Point. We're talking about apples a lot here. Cider Week is coming up. I know some great stuff happening at the market, but what kind of apple variety should we be looking for? Sure. So I stopped in. We have um, a little market right outside our offices in downtown Manhattan, the City Hall Green Market. And I stopped in on Tuesday and talked with um, the Orchards of Conklin. And I said, what should I be eating? And they said, you know, right now the macoons are at their peak. They're just perfect, sweet, crisp, really delicious. He sold me on it. I took this apple back up to my office and I was like, oh my God, this is the best apple I've had yet. Um, So macoons are really great right now. Pippins are really good as are empires and they're all just really, you know, they'll last, they'll be in the market for another couple of months, but right now they're really fresh off the tree and really um, you you should eat them while you can. And then I asked, you know, what apples are coming in next that will really hit their peak and he said, look for wine sap. So in the next couple of weeks, if you spy a wine set, pick it up and, and give it a try. Um, but one of the other things I was thinking about this week was we uh, had a bunch of leftover carrots. And so I, I don't know. Carrots have been in the market for, you know, a couple of months through the end of the summer. And now it's, you know, fall. And what I'm eating is changing a little bit because of the weather. And so I thought I'm going to make a huge pot of carrot soup. And I looked up this old Molly Katzen recipe from the Moosewood cookbook, And um, something that, I mean, I might have just gone ahead and pureed carrots and made carrot soup, you know, sort of off the cuff on my own. But it was nice to look up this recipe because the seasoning she called for fresh basil, thyme, and margarine. And it was such a curious combination, especially the margarine. It's like a really nice, bright herb. And, you know, it's here at this time of year. It won't be here for too much longer. Um, And it really livened up, you know, a soup that in a couple more months, you know, would just kind of feel like a little bit of a heavier winter soup. So I would make a plug for looking for those herbs that are in the market right now that are lush and things like basil that we won't have in the middle of the winter. You know, in a couple months, we'll be relying more on rosemary and dried thyme to season our food. I know. Speaking of things that we shouldn't miss, I mean, I guess it's almost time to say goodbye to grapes, huh? It is, sadly. And I know we keep talking about them every week on the program, but I couldn't make enough plugs for them. I was um, When I was at Grand Army on Saturday this week, I ran into a bunch of friends I don't normally see at the market, and I happened to have already purchased some grapes for myself. And so I just started handing them out to every single person I ran into. And invariably, they'd be like, oh, my gosh, I have to go get some grapes for myself. So the grape line is really long, and people should join it. I got um, Kennedy's and Jupiter grapes, which are both... Um, different varieties of small red grapes, both seedless, and they are, I think, they're my favorites. I think they're really delicious. Um, So I think that they'll be in markets for about another week, maybe two. So eat as many grapes as you can before they're gone. And also the grape juice is delicious, and it freezes really well, so you might want to stock up on a couple um, quarts, put them in your freezer, and then you can kind of work through them in the months ahead. Yeah, and I will say definitely grape growers need your support. It's been a tough season this year, so anything we can do to make sure that they're driving back uh, with empty trucks, I think, is the way to go. Um, Absolutely. 
you know, we don't talk too much about, uh, or we haven't recently talked too much about seasonal, you know, meats or fishes, but mm-hmm. I think uh, it what their scallop season is coming up, right? Yeah, so bay scallops specifically. So the season for bay scallops always opens in about the beginning of November. So you won't see these tiny little scallops in the market just yet, but keep your eyes peeled and in the next couple of weeks they'll come in and they're much tinier than the than the other scallops people might be familiar with in the market. They're also sweeter and um, I mean you can saute them and eat them that way or you can put them in a light broth or maybe steam them with some mussels and they're really a very special special little treat that I always look forward to in the fall. Lovely. I mean, I, I definitely base scallops are my my preferred scallop. Um, <laughs> should I be lucky enough to choose? Um, I mean, I think it's one of the exciting things about shopping at the market is is old favorites, but then also kind of different versions than you're used to seeing. And uh, you highlighted in the notes here potatoes, and mm-hmm. and I, I'm a huge potato fan. So give us a lowdown on what we should be asking for and where. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think potatoes are interesting, right? Because in the summer, like, new potatoes come in. And so, I don't know, they're sort of smaller with red skin usually, and you can kind of boil them and eat them alongside seafood. But then you get a little bit farther along into the season where we are now, and there are all kinds of, I mean, so many different varieties that our farmers have. But specifically, Joe O'Brien is my favorite potato guy. And he's at Union Square on Mondays. He's at Greenpoint on Saturdays. And he has probably no less than 15 different varieties on his table. Each variety has a really nice sign with, you know, description of what he's got. So he's got, you know, purple potatoes and red potatoes. Some are good for baking. Some are good for roasting. Some are good for making mashed potatoes. Um, But I think the thing that people might forget about potatoes is just how flavorful they are. I think usually they kind of serve as a base starch on a plate. Um, But if you get these special little potatoes from the market and really, you know, think about the flavors that are happening there. Um, They're pretty spectacular. So I would recommend going out, getting some potatoes, and um, don't just cover them up with something else. Let them really have their own place on your table. Oh, that sounds awesome. So potatoes, definitely don't miss the grapes this year. Um, Melons, if if you need them, this is your last chance. And then, of course, revving up for, for apple season. So what about event-wise? I mean, you guys always have so much stuff going on. What should we be looking forward to this week? We have so much happening, especially in the next couple of weeks. October is always a really busy time at the market. So starting this weekend, we are participating for the first time this year. We're really excited about it. We're participating in Open House New York, which is happening. Sort of tours are happening at different locations all over the city. Um, they're kind of behind-the-scene tours of buildings you might not normally be able to get into or apartments. People are opening up their doors. And at Union Square, we're offering sort of behind-the-scenes tours of the market. So those will be at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., 11, and 1. Um, So if you're interested, you can stop by and get a private tour of the market. And then otherwise, over in Greenpoint, also this Saturday, um, we're having a borscht off. So there are some neighborhood restaurants that are coming to participate, and they will be making the famous Russian and Polish uh, beet soup that I love. Um, And then we have New Green City next week in Union Square, which is our parent organization, Grow NYC's sort of premier environmental education event. Um, It happens each fall. So it's next Wednesday in the south end of Union Square. So if you find yourself in the area, stop by anytime between 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. 
And then the very next night, we'll be up in Harlem. We're putting together a pop-up market. It's the city's first nighttime green market. So for one night only, you can come by, and there will be neighborhood restaurants selling food, and we have a really terrific lineup of farmers who will be selling produce. There's going to be a gospel choir. There will be a pumpkin patch. Um, So it's at Frederick Douglass Boulevard and uh, 117th Street from 4 to 9 p.m. So that should be a really great evening party. And then the next week, on October 15th, we're having our second in our fall series of Educated Eater panel discussions at the Astor Center. So this one is going to focus on rye and all of its many fabulous forms. So I'm going to talk to um, a couple of farmers about growing rye in this region, talk to a baker who's sourcing all of his rye flour locally now and makes this famous and finish re-spread that's really delicious. And then we'll also talk to Ralph from Tuttletown Spirits about brewing with rye to make his incredible whiskey. Always so much stuff going on. If uh, you missed anything or want to follow up on those dates, you can visit grownyc.org. Um, also visit grownyc.org backslash markets to find out info on cooking demos, book signings, giveaways, and even more than what Jean shared with us today. Um, also, you can follow them on Twitter at Union Square Green Market or at NYC Green Markets. Check out their Facebook pages. No excuses, folks. This is like the main market time. So head out there and stay tuned. Uh, next week, we will bring you another Grow NYC Green Market update. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.